You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture comes from Lamentations 4, 3 through 16. And that's Lamentations chapter 4, verses 3 through 16. Even jackals offer the breast and nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their foam was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her blood the blood of the righteous. They wandered through, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests. No favor to the elders. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening. Oh, we can do, let's do that again. Good evening. That's better. Um, and we won't, we won't look at you uh, when you get up, but if you have a silver Ford Escape with a Missouri license plate, your lights might be on. Um, and uh, if, if you don't want to get up, we'll, I'm sure someone has jumper cables um, and will help you afterwards. Uh, my name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us for the first time, we're really glad that you're with us. Uh, you've come in as we're kind of getting to the end of working through a short book in the Old Testament Uh, It's called Lamentations. And and Lamentations, it's a book that's compiled, that's lamenting. I mean, I I went to public school. I put that together. It's lamenting the fact of destruction that is seen before the prophet Jeremiah. It's looking at something in front of him that's hard to explain. He's looking at brokenness. I mean, and if you were just, as Ethan read that, I mean, it's talking about like moms finding cruelty when they should find love. The circumstances around them aren't availing for what should normally come out of them. But what we see is like a desperation about. Like it's a really difficult 
picture. And it comes to this moment of like, what, what do we do when we see suffering like this? Like when we know that there's like the God of the universe and we believe that he sent his son Jesus and he died in your place, making a way of like redemption so that we could have you know, unity with him, that we could go back to God, that we could come back, that we could be reunited with God himself where we started the beginning, but yet in this world we still see brokenness. Like, like what do we do with that? Or the thing that you've prayed about or the thing that you've endured over and over and it doesn't seem to go away and you start to question the goodness of God himself. Like, have you ever just wondered, like, looked at God, why? Why this uh, again? Why this? And so, like, even, like, right here, like, we see a lot about this. Um, we're really focused. Last week, we looked at this uh, a little bit. Actually, we looked at the whole thing, and uh, like I try, guys, I try, I try to preach shorter, but like this, like I'm not even gonna lie to you. I don't know how long this is gonna go, because there's a lot that I just want to unpack. And so, two weeks on this on a really difficult chapter, and last week we we focused on one element. We focused like, what do we see when we look at the streets? Like when we look at the streets, to be honest, like the compelling nature of Lamentations four is: look what's before you. Can you see what came before? Can you see what's now? And can you be honest? And so, last week we we dealt with just like in our country with a with a racist past, like how that affects, like we see streets that are just not equal. And like, I, I, you know, I didn't offer like a lot of solutions of what we do, but like just the question, can, can we just look at that and be honest and say, it's, it looks wrong. And this week we're gonna look at how the sufferings, like when we refuse to fight sin, how, how children suffer. And when we get to the end of it, we're going to talk about the suffering of children, both born and unborn. And like, I, I, I've read statistics. Like, I want you to know, man, I've read statistics. I, I know where we stand. I know that there is no way that this is going to fall on, on ears uh, of people who haven't entered into that kind of darkness and suffered. And I want you to hear, like, we're gonna lay that over with the gospel and we're gonna hear that there is no condemnation and Jesus loves to step in and he loves to heal. And, like, you're gonna have to wait. You're gonna have to sit with me to get there. But I also just wanna see the picture of, like, Lamentations 3, the, probably the darkest night of Lamentations, giving birth to some of the beautiful pictures of God's grace being new every morning. Like, I want you to know God loves to enter in to the brokenness that we bring if we'll just hold it up to him. And so before we start, I just want to pray. Uh, Father, Lord, man, we ask uh, for help. Um, Jesus, Lord, we ask for help. Lord, we ask that we would not treat any suffering trite. Lord, we ask that we would not treat uh, darkness like it's those people out there. But Lord, we would see the dividing line of sin, not outside of us, but Lord, we would lament about the dividing line of sin inside of us. Lord, that we would take the invitation of the gospel that the only sin I really have access to is my sin. Lord, I pray that the light of Jesus would be compelling and it would grow, it would be strong. And Lord, we would have a sense of movement. 
You have placed us and you have called us like a city on a hill that can't be hidden, a light that you wouldn't cover up, that people might see our good deeds and they might worship our Father in heaven. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take that and we would take the light of the gospel that we can be united with God because of the atoning death of Jesus. And that is for everyone. And so, Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, in my house, I've noticed something that uh, when my kids are hurt, like they don't really want me. Uh, like they want to go past me. Like if, if I'm there and we had a situation where Cruz, I asked him to go get the, um, the Instant Pot and he was carrying it and I saw it right before it happened, but the Instant Pot fell and it landed on his big toe and the terror in his eyes, like it was a good like two minutes, no noise, no anything. It wasn't even breathing. He just looked at me and it was this moment where he realized mom's not here to help me and I don't think I want you. This is somehow your fault. Like there was this desperation in his eyes and I knew, man, I, I just hugged him and I knew it was inadequate. I knew what he wanted. He wanted mom. And he actually has a lot of good reasons for why I wanted mom. Like when, when Quinn, our oldest, when she broke her arm uh, falling out of the bunk bed, out of the bottom of the bunk bed. But when she broke her arm, my first response was, it's fine, and I've realized this about myself, like I want to answer things based on what I want, not based on the evidence in front of me. Like as soon as I said, it's fine, you just need to walk that off, I saw the confusion in her eyes, like it's my arm, like how do I walk that off? And so I just, we went to bed, Kinsey was worried, she's like, I just don't know, I'm like, hey, it is fine, like we would know, like she squeezed my finger, it's fine. The next morning when we went to the doctor, the x-rays and the doctor disagreed with me. It was definitely broken. So in some ways, I've lost trust, but like there's something in my household like when, when someone is hurt, like they want mom. And I just think about this. I'm convinced that 95% of us are alive because our moms like, like 95% of us. Like, like I, I think about going back to when... Um, we first brought Quinn home. Like when we first brought Quinn home from the hospital, like I kind of felt like she was trying to make a compelling case that she should be con not continued on the lease of our house. Like everything she seemed to do was kind of trying to make a case that we should like sublease her out. Like, I mean, looking back on that, you know, I mean, like when we brought her home, like I definitely loved her, but I saw a different kind of love in Kinsey's eyes. And it actually scared me. Like, it actually scared me. Like, hey, what is wrong with me? And, you know, a psychiatrist, like, they would say, hey, there's actually chemical hormones that have helped, you know, us survive. And it happens with women. But, you know, I, I just noticed these things. Like, like, when she was hungry, she had a cry that could wake the dead and they would go find her food. And she never expressed concern if it was a good time for us. When she didn't want to sleep, she demanded that we had an all-nighter with her, and she never like wanted to let you take a nap during the day. And when she poo-pooed or pee-peed or spit up on you, she never apologized for it. And I actually would see her giggle like she enjoyed it. Like I felt like she was making a strong case for like, maybe we should take her back. But man, this enduring love that I just saw instantly in Kinsey. You know, and this extends um, into food, it extends beyond the baby years. Like, 
You know, I know more dads who would let their kids eat Cheetos and chocolate donuts just for peace and quiet. And yet, like, Kenzie demands fruits and vegetables at every meal. You know, or, or even just this sense of, like, there's danger in the world and we should be careful. And so for Christmas, I love to make at least one thing. And so I've made, like, a wooden kitchen, and it makes me a liar to my kids. I was in the garage making it, and Cruz was literally, he came in, he's like, that looks like a kitchen. I'm like, nah, man, get out of here. Is that your mom I hear? You know, just kind of get on out. And so I, I lied to him. And then at one point, I made a dollhouse, an American Girl dollhouse, because I looked at how much they cost, and we could not take a second mortgage on the house. And so it, it, it's bigger than what you're imagining, but it's more simple. But at one point, she just kind of called it. She's like, that kind of looks like a dollhouse. And I was like, no, nah, man, it's a doghouse, you know? Um, and so, I mean, it made me a liar. Well, this year, I didn't know what to make, and so I had this idea. I'm gonna make a potato gun. We're gonna make a potato gun. And Kinsey, her first response was, do you think that's a good idea? And I was like, of course it's a good idea. You know, she asked the question, I think about, like, what's fun? And she thinks, will it kill somebody? You know, but what I see, like, when, when I look out in the world, is I just, and we've got to witness this over and over as a church family. Like we, like babies are happening everywhere. And you know, I'm mostly off social media. And so like, if you're, if you're having a baby uh, and you haven't told me, I just don't know, okay? But like, it's something we get to celebrate often and it's so great. And I see this endearing look that I think is God ordained that is put in. And what we have in Lamentations 4 is this mixed bag of sorrow. We have this mixed bag of sorrow that then goes on to describe like the unraveling of humanity based on suffering that's around us. Yeah, Lamentation 4, it's, we see it, it it's somewhat of a, of a biblical lament and it's somewhat of a, a funeral song. And so a, a lament, a lament asks the questions why. It begs, why, O oh Lord? And so what we see in Lamentations 4 is Jeremiah is looking and he's like, God, it used to look like this, but now it looks like this. Why? You know, in some ways, a lament, it's like serving our soul as a protest that we look at God and we just say, can you see what's going on as we assemble and as we draw a picture? Do you see what's here? You know, laments help us process deep emotions. Like it gives words. You know, all of Lamentations, until we get to next week, chapter five, and we're landing the plane with that, it's all trying to follow a very specific type of poetry where it goes A, B, C, the first lines all the way through. You get to chapter three, and it actually is, you know, three times it goes A, 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 B, B, B. And it starts to kind of unravel a little bit in chapter four. And then in chapter five, there's like no order left. It's like working with an exercise to bring order to a situation to try to express until the heart and the emotion just take over. It gives words to process deep emotions. It also gives voice to your confusion. I just don't understand. That's the lament side. The other characteristics of Lamentations 4 is it's really kind of like a funeral song. And a funeral song just does this. It just cries for what's lost. And so the pictures that we see here is over and over, it just looks at something and it just says, this is loss and this is broken. And it just cries for what is lost. When I was um, still doing student ministry in Warrensburg, um, during a staff meeting, one of, uh, one of our pastors, 
he worked with uh, some grief share. And man, he gave this beautiful picture that he observed of just grief. And it's actually this perfect lamenting or perfect balance between lamenting and just loss. And what happened was one of the ladies who was in a halfway house because of drugs, you know, from addiction, she brought with her, she's supposed to share her story, and she brought with her this empty keychain. And in the empty keychain, she started to go through what used to be on the keychain. She said, I used to have a house key, but my family had to take it away because of my addiction. She went on and she just lamented and talked about what was lost. She said, I used to have a car key, but when I checked into rehab, they took it away. She said, I used to have a work key, but because of addiction, it took that job away. She said, I used to have a neighbor's key and I would help them with their plants. I would help them with their, their animals when they're vacation. I'm no longer trusted. They took it away. And she said, I used to have a mailbox key where I'd get correspondence And then she would say, I used to have these other keys. I don't even know where they went, but this is what I know. I don't have any of the keys anymore that open up any of the doors of my life. Like, what an incredible picture. As she held this empty key ring, she said, look at all that sin has stolen from me. Like she lamented the loss that these doors that used to be open in her life are no longer open. And the question in that moment is, what does redemption have for someone like me? If I've lost all the keys in my life, and maybe if they were rightfully taken away, is there redemption for someone like me? Someone who has no more keys to the doors, is there redemption for me? Does God have something for me? Have you ever seen that? So last week we uh, looked, and we're going to look at it just again about the before and after pictures of Jerusalem, of you know how wealth had changed, and leaders had changed, and children had changed. You know, and we focused at the end on the picture of the street. It's the biggest picture that you see. So if you look down the text, you're going to see that word every street in verse one. You know, if you jump down to verse five and eight, you're going to see in the streets are represented. And every time we talk about every street or in the street, we see a suffering that's happening. Or jump down to verse 14, it says throughout the streets. Or, or then in verse 18, it says our streets. And I think that's even like that movement is even to bring a more brokenness that he's saying, man, I see this in every street. I see it over there in that street. And then he gets to the end. I see it in my streets. And so we talked about how we need to look at the disparity in streets in our countries, and we just need to say, man, something is broken. Last week, the call of Lamentations was that we could look at the street and just be honest that something is wrong. This week, the call is very similar, but specifically, if we refuse to address our sins, it creates a unique suffering on the lives of children. And so let's look at that real fast. So the first thing, Jeremiah gives us a before and after picture of the things that we think can save us, but failed them. And so he, sees, you know, he points a picture of wealth, power, and position. And so first, wealth, look at verse one and two in the text. It says, you know, it's gonna say the wealth of the city that was once so highly sought after is now like it's dim in luster and scattered in the street. So verse one, it says, how the gold has grown dim. 
How the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, have they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. And so the picture is like the precious stones and the gold, it didn't secure lives. Their wealth didn't secure their wives the way they believed it might. It even says like right there in verse one, it says gold has changed. I mean, the ironic part of that is that the, the physical principles of gold is it doesn't oxidize, it doesn't change. But looking in the moment of this suffering, it says it's dim in luster, it couldn't do what it promised, it's changed. In the presence of their suffering, it had nothing for them, now dim with hope. And so the wealth that everyone sought, that everyone trusted in, that promised security or significance or satisfaction, it can't save them now. You know, all, all the time that was devoted to gain it, or all the time to, to praise it, how does it benefit them now? It's scattered in the street. And so just the picture, God doesn't value the things that we value. You know, the next picture, like leaders, like we see a before and after picture of Jerusalem leaders. And so like jump down to verse five. It says, those who feasted on delicacies, and so now, so they used to do that, but now they perish in the streets. Or jump down, verse five again, it says, those who brought up in purple now embrace in heaps. Or it says, you know, verse six, the chastisement of the daughters of my people have been greater than the punishment of Sodom which was overthrown in a moment and no hands were wrung for. And so he just says like, look what they were, look what they are now. It'd be better if they lost everything like Sodom did as ash and fire fell upon them. It'd be better if it was all over at once, one violent swoop. You know, he goes on and we have the picture in verse seven. He says, her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than the coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphires. Now, verse eight, their face is blacker than soot. They, they, they are not recognized in the street. Their skin has shriveled on the bones. It has become dry as wood. And it, it talks about the same thing that we believe. Like we look at people who, with prominence or we look at people with accomplishment or we look at people with a certain type of beauty and we think, man, if I only had that, I would be okay. And this is a case example of it didn't save them. It didn't save them. You know, one by one, we believe like they did. We think success or status will save us. We marvel at accomplishment or celebrity. We praise beauty and ability. We believe that if people think that we're pretty or exceptional or that we're uh, above average or whatever, that we will be above so suffering and loss. And sometimes we think if we accomplish a lot or we're productive, we'll be above the judgment of our sins. And Jeremiah looks and says, do you see what's before you? It goes on and it says the same thing it really said in verse six and verse nine. Happy were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger who wasted away, pierced by lack of fruit of the field. And he just says it again, it'd be better if it just all ended at once, but yet we're languishing in our loss and it won't go away. The slow demise of what was once coveted, what everyone believed would save them, would save them, is dying on so many 
levels. I think Jeremiah 4 says something obvious. God doesn't value the same things we value. Wealth, power, position, it doesn't produce what we think it will. And it can't undo the darkness of our sins. And so we see these before and after pictures. We get to the third picture. And Jeremiah gives us a before and after picture of the unique suffering on children when we refuse to fight sin. Like this picture, like we see it in verse 3. It talks about the innocence of the young. In verse 4, it talks about infants and children not having enough. In verse 10, it talks about children again. And so look at, look at verse 3. It says, Even jackals offer their breasts. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people have become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. Like, I, I don't claim to know a lot about jackals or ostriches, but I have watched wildcrats. And wildcrats, if you've never watched wildcrats, they can say flattering things about any animals and how they produce and how they help. They have a show on mosquitoes, and they try to make a case that there's something good for mosquitoes. And so when, you know, looking up jackals, like jackals, what, what are they? are op- opportunist predators who live in desolate places, preying upon the sick and helpless. That means even though they're cute and they kind of look like something between a, a German shepherd and a fox and they're not really, really big and you kind of want to treat it like a dog and treat in the wild, if you are wounded, it will eat you. If you're not wounded, it will leave you alone. It takes the opportunity to jump on the frail, to jump on those who can't defend themselves. And it says, the comparison here, even jackals who will destroy anything weaker than them without a second, even they take care of their young. And and then it says, you know, we become cruel like ostriches. And like ostriches, like I, I don't know a lot about ostriches, uh, Kinsey's cousin, you know, used to be in a, a show and he would ride an ostrich, which, I mean, I don't know if that's cool or not, but he would say they're mean. But like, he's making the comparison because ostriches seem to not care about their young when they're in eggs. They lay their eggs out in the open. They're known to run away if predators come. And so maybe they're trying to chase predators away, but seemingly they just don't care. And so he starts off in verse three and he says, listen, there's something that has changed. There's a unique suffering that has set in and even jackals take care of their young or even ostriches do, but something has changed. Look at verse four. It goes on to describe this. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. And so just real plain, nursing infants don't have what they need. Children beg, but they're left hungry. Like in this suffering, in the judgment of society who refuses to fight their sins, kids suffer in a unique and tragic way. And then jump down to verse 10. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children They have become food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Like, that's a lot. Like, let's start off with what that's not saying. That is not saying, like, the hands of mean, wretched, bloodthirsty, you know, women jump at the opportunity to boil their own children. That's not saying that. 
You know, that's not like making this comparison of like Hansel and Gretel. Like, have you seen the trailer for the new Hansel and Gretel? It is terrifying. It came up on just an advertisement on the Apple TV. And like, I could not turn it off fast enough because I do not want my kids sleeping with me for a week. But it's not saying that. What else is it not saying? It doesn't say like that the daughter of my people are indifferent to suffering and they devour their children with disregard and apathy. It says compassionate women fall victim to desperate circumstances and sufferings that lead them to the unthinkable. That's what it says. And I think what it's saying is like, Normal, good-hearted people are capable of incredible evil in, in, in desperate situations. Like, this demands us to look. Like, and, and before we write, you know, something off as just, man, they're evil, it demands us to look within. Like, if compassionate women can all of a sudden, like, change, like, what danger does that say about me? Like, what does that mean about what I might be capable of, barring the grace of God working in my life? You know, to kind of land, I want to look at four things. And I think all four of these things are in this text. And so if you're taking notes, you can write these down and be done. I want to look how this kind of suffering in children, both the born and the unborn, how it relates to broken streets, which we see broken streets. I want to look how it relates to broken appetites. We see broken appetites. And I want to look how it relates to broken reason. And then I want to land with broken hearts. So first, broken streets. We saw broken streets described in verse 1, 5, 8, 14, and 18. Like last week, we looked at that. That's the most repeated picture is the brokenness, like in the real world. Like what do you see out here? Not philosophically what you think. You know, I had this, this moment. It was in high school where our guidance counselor, it was one of those like pull all the kids aside and the guidance counselor like talks to you. And it was talking about like de-escalating like conflict. And so, I mean, our guidance counselor was trying to describe how you get out of a fight. And as, as she was describing the steps to de-escalate conflict, uh, a kid in the back, one of my friends, he raised his hand and he's like, hey, there's no way that's gonna work on my street. And he says, you, on my street, you better like hit and run. And he goes to like, he's saying like, in the real world, I don't know if that's gonna work. And what he was saying was like, what I experience or what I see, is that real? And so when we talk about broken streets, like we could just look at some statistics. And so in a study that I read, it said that 73% of women Undergoing an abortion said that not being able to afford a baby was the number one reason. That number rose to 81% for women who are below the federal poverty line. When you see the death of the unborn as the enemy, do you see the enemy of broken streets? Or do you just see people as the enemy? I mean, that statistic is saying, 
I can't bring a baby into this kind of suffering. That statistic is saying, I don't know if I have what it takes. I'm not sure there will be enough. That statistic is saying there's something desperate in the climate, and as Christians, we should care. And sometimes I wonder, like, what if our loudest voice was something alive? Like, I understand the fear and the desperation, and I understand what what that looks like, and I want to enter in, and I want to know. And what if our loudest voice was like, we'll help. Like, we want to help. Like, what if the loudest voice around it was like, we see need, and if it's just need, we want to enter in, and we're available if you'll give voice to the need? Like, what if we said, man, I'm afraid in the same circumstances, that might be me. Let me try to eliminate some circumstances. What if our loudest thing was, if you have need, just ask us. If it's too fearful, like, we'll adopt. Like, the first thing is we see broken streets. Do you see broken streets? Man, the second thing, broken appetites. In verse 10, we unpacked it a little bit, but you know, the hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They have become food during the destruction of my temple. And like trying to get past that, that just that picture, like just to focus on the elements of it. An appetite makes the unthinkable an option. And I, I gotta be honest, I, I'm not I'm not even mad at women, I'm mad at men. Like, I'm not even mad at women. I'm mad at men. Well, over 80% of women having abortions are single. And I just wonder what that would do if the man who got her pregnant said, I will never leave you for richer or poorer, for, for sickness and health until death do we part. We have to connect the appetite for sex outside of marriage with the conclusion of kids suffering. Like we have to connect that. And so like when we look at this, when we see broken appetites, like what would it be if we as a, as a Christian people were like, man, like we, we said some crazy things. Like we said, hey, listen, God made sex and it's great. Like God made that and it's good and he told us how to use that. He told us the purpose of it. The purpose of it is in marriage. It's a way they say, I know you in a way no one else gets to know you. And he said like within the warmth of that family, that's how children are supposed to come in, like the security of that. Like, like we have to connect the appetites and God's proposal with, with the outcome. Like it's far more reaching behind us. And so we see broken streets we see broken appetites, and we see broken reason. In verses 1 through 4, 5 through 9, and then verse 10, we see like the lamenting of Jeremiah looking at the streets. He says, man, it used to work like this, but now it's working like this. And he's like seeing all that's lost. A couple of years ago, I, I was talking to a pastor in New York, and he was describing to me where they planted the church and where it met. And he said, hey, and he used street names that I don't know because it's New York, you know. And he, he described where he was and he says, man, we are right on the dividing line between like the poorest section of New York and the richest section of New York. 
And he started to talk about the unique challenges of that, but that's where they want to be. They want to be on that line to hold the gospel out in both directions. And he says, these are the lines we want to stand on. And then he started to talk about other challenges. He said, you know, actually, like, in that county or in that, that, that area, that, those neighborhoods, we also have the highest level of abortions in two areas. And one is under predominantly black poor women, and the other is on the other line, rich white women. And so he says, like, we stand on this line. And he's like, it's a really difficult thing because we want to speak to the needs. And so he starts to unpack, like, like, what he sees. And he started to say this. He's like, listen, I, I think reason is not the enemy. I think it's become more demonic and darker than that. Because in 38 states, and I looked it up, but, you know, you can't believe anything you look up on the Internet anymore. I looked it up. 38 states have infant homicide laws. And so that means if you're driving and someone is careless and they hit you and your baby who's in utero, dies, they can be liable to the law for that wrongful death. But if the mother decides, I don't know if I want that baby, and the baby's taken, not liable to law. Jake, one of my friends, he was in um, medical school, and he was a part of a Christian coalition of medical professionals, and he was participating in, in a debate about whether abortion violated the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm or not. And so they had opening, and he, you know, in the opening they went through, and they went through all the statistics, and that's a lot of times what happens uh, when you talk about abortion. And it talks about how 21 weeks, you know, baby has all the working organs, fingerprints, they can hear, respond to mom and dad's voice, they can pull back from pain, they suck their thumbs, and they yawn, and, you know, went through this long list of all those things. And when they got to the end of it, and it was the other time for opening arguments, the opposition was like, hey, we're actually offended. You acted like we didn't know that. We know that. And so it means we know that, and we don't care. And so where we see reasons can defy themselves we see broken streets and broken appetites and broken reasons. But amongst all of that, do you see broken hearts? Broken hearts. And man, I'm so thankful for the scriptures because we have a picture of someone engaging with the broken hearts of hearing the news that they're gonna lose their unborn son and it's a result of their sin and we get the beautiful picture of the gospel played out and so if you have your Bibles, look at Psalms 51 and just walk through it with me. And so if you, if you know the story of David and Bathsheba at all, King David he, he, he had broken appetites and he should have been off at war, but he wasn't off at war. And he looks off his roof and he sees Bathsheba and he knows who Bathsheba is. It's his friend Uriah, the Hittite's wife. And he takes her and, he, and he, he gets her pregnant. And then from that moment on, he's trying to get uncaught. He eventually arranges the murder of his friend who was so faithful to him and he covers it up and he thinks he's good, but God comes after his broken heart. And so it says this in Psalms 51 verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly 
from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Like, like really succinctly, he's saying, do better, can't undo my sin. My excuses and my rationale can't clear it away. But it says this, and so he's talking to God, and we see the full picture of God in the person of Jesus. It says this, but you can look to Jesus and say, I want your mercy. My sin has layers, but ultimately is against you. Will you give me mercy? It goes on in verse five. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, my sin runs deeper than I know. It was residing in me for the opportune moment. It wasn't something that just happened. It was always in me, and I need the grace of God to deal with it. And that's like, like, like pity in our hearts, and grace in our hearts is to look at broken situations and say, I'm scared of what would come out of me in that situation. Verse six, it says, behold, you delight in the truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That is pointing forward to the redemptive work of Jesus. Jesus miraculously heals and changes. Verse eight. Let me hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Did you hear that? He's not just asking for forgiveness. Can I have joy and gladness again? Can I be happy again? And in Jesus, the answer is yes. Verse nine, it says, in your face, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Can you heal the brokenness inside of me? And the answer is yes, Jesus can. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Have you ever just said, don't push me away? Don't abandon me? Can you hold me? And the answer is yes. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. I, I have seen this happen a hundred times, hundreds of times, where people talk about the places where God has restored them and God does miraculously things in the other people's lives. I think the, the most powerful thing we do is the testimonies with baptisms. When someone stands up here and they give their testimony and they just say, this is how Jesus met me, these are my struggles. And I think what happens is people who are questioning that, they just ask this question, God, if you could do that for them, can you do that for me? God loves to answer that question. From the darkness of night, comes the mercy of mourning. And he says, I will teach your ways and sinners will return to you. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God, my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. David, a murderer, a conspirator, an adulterer, a guy who stabbed his friend in his back and stole his wife. He asked God, can you take away my guilt? Like, just for a second, look, look at me, just for a second. 
How incredible is that? Not just for forgiveness. He's saying, can you give me joy again? Can you make me useful again? Can you do this kind of thing? Can I be one with you? And then it goes on in verse 15. Oh Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praises for you will not delight in sacrifices or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Christian, or if you're in the room and you're not for sure about what it takes to be a Christian, or, or if there's any sin that you still struggle with that's still haunting you from the past, all you need to bring to Jesus is what's broken. He'll never turn that away. He'll never turn that away. And if you bring to Jesus what is broken, he says things like this to you. Romans 8, 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The only thing you need is brokenness. And you get all of Jesus. And that's the one thing that unites all believers. We brought our brokenness to Jesus and he didn't refuse it and he entered in and now he looks at me and he says, I don't have any condemnation left. And now he looks at me and he says, I, I, I see a new creation. I promise I'm not going to be done until it's beautiful, until it's fully revealed. Do you have brokenness for Jesus? Let me pray.